Hey, cuz, I'm Claude Cole, and this is the next episode of How Good It Is, the show that takes a closer look at songs from the rock and roll era, and we check out some of the stories behind those songs. But today, I've got a special overstuffed episode for you. How good it is! A couple of weeks ago, I was able to sit down via Skype for a chat with Anthony Robostelli. Now, Anthony has been a touring musician for a lot of big acts over the years, and he's an expert on the Beatles and Steely Dan. He's written a book about each of them with more in the future. When the music opportunity shut down because of the pandemic, Anthony focused his attention to teaching himself the skills to work on yet another creative project. And over the next 50-ish minutes, you're going to hear about all of that and a little bit more. And let me tell you, both before and after the recording software was running, he and I just got to nerd out over a few interests we had in common. So what you're going to hear is me being all awkward at first with the tell us about your career slugger questions. But before long, we dropped into a genuine conversation about music, digital animation, and writing for music fans. You know, I can't I can't compartmentalize this guy because he's just got so much stuff going on. He's a touring musician. He is a producer. He put together a 3D musical that it appears to still be working on. Uh, he has written books about the Beatles, about Steely Dan. He's got his own musical projects going on. He's an all-around renaissance man when it comes to music. Welcome, Mr. Rubastelli. How are you today? Thanks. Great, great. Thanks for having me. Let's dive right into to some of the stuff that you have done. And, and let's start at the beginning. Like, well, what, what first got you into the industry in the first place? Well, um, you know, I've been playing music since I was really young. I started playing piano when I was five, uh, picked up guitar, bass, drums, played trumpet, um, and ended up going to NYU undergrad for jazz performance and then got a master's in education. Um, but by the time I was finished with my master's, you know, I was teaching privately, but I decided not to go into teaching in school system, uh, because I was playing in a lot of bands in New York and I started a recording studio and that was taking up so much time that, you know, that's the path I went down. So it really started with a small studio with a partner in Brooklyn, um, you know, doing local gigs and, recording local indie acts and and that was really how it all got started i'm was uh born and raised in new york about 40 minutes outside of manhattan ended up you know moving to manhattan for college and then moving to brooklyn and then started the studio there and in my early 20s and then you know went from there terrific and then and then and then how did you get into the touring end of things you know, I really was from playing a lot of shows in New York with different artists and, you know, sometimes being recommended for an audition for a tour or, um, you know, one of one of the earliest things I did, I played some gigs with Bo Diddley because a friend of mine was the guitarist. They needed uh, an organist at the time. And uh, the funny story about that was the first gig that I did, they had never told Bo that there was going to be a new keyboard player. And <laughs> he, he liked the guy he had and he didn't know why they were switching and his managed manager and musical director who was his bass player they never told him so i show up to this gig and the way those gigs worked was you know you would learn the material but you weren't rehearsing with Bo before gigs they just you know you just went and did the gig so you know he shows up in the dressing room and he's asking like who's this guy <laughs> so it was a little awkward but you know it was an experience I, I was that was amazing you know playing with one of the greats and one of the you know, founders of rock and roll to be able to sit behind a B3 and, and play behind him was very cool. But at the same time, it would have helped if they had told him before. Again, I, I imagine that that when you're doing something like the blues, they, there's a lot of stuff in there that that once you've kind of got it down, it, it, there's there's things that are that you're just naturally going to fall into and, 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 and things that you kind of fall back upon that makes it a little bit easier to to roll with whatever they're throwing at you? Yeah, it's true. Um, I mean, the thing with that was a lot of it is just following, you know, where they're going with it. And, uh, you know, since most of it was is blues-based, you know, you know what the chords are going to be, basically. But, you know, there are a lot of hits and a lot of stops. And when you have someone like that who's a legend, he does things his own way. He's got his own swagger. So you really have to follow where he's going with the music as well um so yeah it's it's, it's cool and it's exciting because you're thrown into that environment and you just got to run with it 
Um, and through that, you know, just ended up playing more gigs and doing, you know, more shows. I played with a uh, very big R&B artist, Kelly Price. Uh, so we were on tour with her for a while, which, you know, one thing always leads to the other. The tour manager that was her tour manager after that, those tours ended. He called me one day and said, oh, you know, Michael Franti and Spearhead are looking for a new keyboard player. Um, you want to come fly out to San Francisco and, and play for him? And, you know, went and played for him you know played with them for like an hour and they were like all right we're starting a tour in you know one week and the way their shows were you know those shows were three and a half hour shows and every night would be different so within basically a week and a half that was like the most work i ever had to do i had to learn about 80 songs um because every show was number one, it was they were long. They were three and a half hour, like Bruce Springsteen style shows. They just went on and on. And, you know, part of that whole scene there, like the jam band scene, is people are coming to see, you know, different shows every night. Uh, you know, you have some uh, rock and pop artists that, you know, they have a set list and that's the set list that you play every night and it never really varies much. But with someone like uh, Franti and Spearhead, the whole point of it was to have a different show every night. So we were pulling from such a huge repertoire of material that it was so much to learn so quickly and then jump on the road, you know, doing a double bill with uh, Ziggy Marley. Um, It was a lot to, to, to jump in there, but it it was a great experience because the, especially because the crowds were so awesome and, playing you know a lot of festivals all over europe and glastonbury and played for the biggest crowds you know i ever played for it was really exciting yeah that 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 brings up an interesting point it's something that i i covered just a few weeks ago when we were talking about um dan fogelberg and his experience with with the song uh same old lang syne and there's a line in the song about how, how the, the crowds were heavenly, but the traveling was hell. And that that was a very, that was pulled right out of his life as far as the, the he loved performing and he loved the people that he performed for, but he just hated the grind of the road. And was that your experience too? It, it definitely was. You know, at the time when I was touring the most, um, was probably was yeah it was definitely with spirit because their their tour schedule was pretty crazy you know in a year you'd be on the road eight months um so it wasn't even you know you're out for a few months it was you know you were gone and for me it at the beginning it's really exciting but you know a month in it's a lot of the same like playing the shows that's a lot of fun the the response from the crowds um Going to, you know, certain places when you're traveling, it's amazing to go places you've never been. You know, the first time I'd been to Australia, um, you know, so those things are great. But actually being on the road on a tour bus and all that, that gets old really quickly. And and also, by the time I was doing that extensive touring, I was a little bit older. I was in, you know, my mid 30s. So I wasn't 22 where you know, everything is new and it's wild. You know, by that time you're more, more settled. I was married. Um, you know, I, I definitely was looking for that break. And then once I had, uh, my daughter, that was really the time that I was like, all right, I don't really want to be on the road to this extent. Um, which led to some other tours and some other touring experiences that would be like shorter where you would go out for a couple weeks or there would be long weekends or it wasn't so much this you're out for the majority of the year which got to a point you know that that could be that could get a little old Mm -hmm. all right tell me about working with the duprees that that sounded kind of interesting to me that was actually that actually came from um i was the musical director for gloria Gaynor for a bit and through that, the second keyboard player was the musical director for the Duprees. So he had a bunch of shows that th- they used two keyboard players because there are a lot of string parts. And, um, you know, basically one guy covers the piano and the other person is covering strings and horns. And that was my job was the second keyboard part. And their regular second keyboard player, she wasn't able to do all the gigs. So. Um, he asked me, you know, if I'd be able to, and a very cool book, you know, um, they sound amazing. And I've always been a fan of 
of harmony. I've, I've incorporated, you know, close harmony in a lot of my own music. And, you know, that style of harmony, like the Duprees and a lot of those doo-wop groups, that's where so much came from, you know, later on when you listen to a lot of rock groups and a lot of stuff in the 60s and beyond, um, had to start with something. And so so many people pulled from like the Duprees and Dion and the Belmonts. Um, but yeah, they were really cool guys. Um, I'm Italian, so there are a lot of <laughs> Italians there. And it was an interesting crowd because, you know, it was going from Spearhead and this jam band scene and festivals and just you know, feeling like a throwback to, you know, Woodstock at times <laughs> and then going to the Duprees, which is, you know, definitely a much older crowd, um, more like, uh, you know, people coming for dinner and a show. And so it was interesting. It was like two extremes. Um, but, you know, doing them almost simultaneously, doing one thing and then going and doing another, you know, keeps it interesting. Now, now, I presume we we appear to be of of similar ages. You might be a little bit older than me, but not by much. Um, but but it 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 seems like sometimes when I in my in my young adult years was going to see some of these these older groups and the, with the vocal group harmonies and such, that there would be times when well, some guys would like retire or frankly die, and they would rotate somebody else in, and so you had like this group, which was not quite the group that you remember from way back right. when, A, or B, where people would just split up and then there'd be two or three different incarnations of a group floating yeah. around. And, and, and so what, what, was, what was your experience as far as that was concerned? You know, they, um, they still, if I remember correctly, there were still two original, original members and then two newer guys um, who were still not by, they weren't young. They were just younger than the original members. Um, yeah, I think that's just a, a, a part of it. It's become a huge part of the business. And now, you, you you know, originally you saw it a lot with the vocal groups, but now as, you know, bands from the sixties, even into the seventies now, everybody's getting older. So it's rare that, you know, I'm, I'm a huge Chicago fan. I've seen Chicago many times. Um, and, even not not because not so much because of death because Terry Kath, the guitarist, was the only person from Chicago who who died and they had to replace. But over the years, people quitting, people wanting to go on a solo career like Peter Cetera, you end up going to see a band that only has honestly right now there are two original horn players and Robert Lamb, the keyboard player. Nobody else from the band is original. Um but, you know, a lot of times I think it comes down to the the songs. And, of course, often it's the lead singer. That's, you know, a lead singer of a band is such a major focal point and part of the sound where um, once the lead singer leaves, I, I think a lot of times bands have problems with crowds continuing to come because they feel like, uh, you know, it, it's one thing if it's a different drummer and a different bass player. It's another thing if it's a different lead singer. Um so you do, like you said, you do find at times these splintered groups. Some are able to use the name because they own the rights. Some are have to put you know so and so from this band. So you end up with this mishmash of bands out there that you know. As a musician, I I am always looking into you know who's playing, what's going on. But as a fan, I'm sure a lot of people aren't even aware at times of who they're seeing. Yeah, and and the other thing that that happens is, and it's just a natural function of getting older, and, and and is people's voices change, and and you're not going to be able to do some of the stuff today that you did twenty, twenty five, thirty, whatever year, years ago, and I I think about like Lou Christie is still out there touring. I have no idea if he can still do those falsettos. Right. Which go back to like when I was a baby, you know, <laughs> or, or, or like Elton John, who now has somebody kind of singing with him and he goes low and the other guy goes high. I've noticed, yep. I've seen footage Billy of Billy Joel of that. sings in different keys now. He lowers the keys. Billy Joel and then Robert Plant will go down where he used to go up. So he puts a yep. different bend on the notes and it still sounds pretty cool, you know, even if it's not him going Wah! way up there. Right. Like, wow. This uh, this is even better. You know, I like this. <laughs> I, I actually like this a little bit better. And my experience with it was it wasn't the Duprees. It was with the um, the Drifters. I saw they were like oh, okay. way way out on like I think out in Brookhaven. I lived on Long Island for I grew up there, and, and I went to see one of those old oldies revival concerts and so forth. And 
I don't think it was the original lead singer, but it was an older fella, and he couldn't hold the notes, so he wound up singing staccato, which <laughs> kind of took you out of the song because he wasn't doing that glide from note to note or holding it for very long at all. And and you know, and even that wasn't the most unfortunate thing that happened that night because there was also a fireworks show, and one of the fireworks went off about ten feet off the ground, and that oh. yeah, that scared <laughs> the hell out of everybody. But but but. It, it's interesting to see musicians compensate one way or another. Right. I mean, you even think of, I, I think of like looking back at footage of the stones, even as early as the late sixties, where often Mick wouldn't be singing the hooks the way they are on the record. And so many of those hooks were him and Keith singing together. And Keith was often not on the mic, you know, doing his thing. Mm -hmm. And you could go back to late 60s and early 70s shows where a lot of the hits and, you know, even album tracks, certain parts come up and they don't sound the same as the record. Because even back then, they're messing with melodies and changing things around, not necessarily um, because they're older and they can't sing it, but for whatever reasons they're choosing. And at times, you know, I, I feel like that can get distracting when you go to a show and because someone can't sing it a certain way, sometimes you end up with, with a beautiful new interpretation, but sometimes it makes you long for the original that much more. Yeah. 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 All right. So, so tell me like, what's, what's the craziest thing that ever happened to you on the road? Oh God. <laughs> well, one of the coolest things, maybe not the craziest, but was when we played, uh, we played Glastonbury, on the main stage um, on the day, the same day as, as Paul McCartney. And, you know, I'm a huge Beatles fan. So uh, it was us. And then after us was, I think it was Ben Harper, Black Eyed Peas, Paul McCartney. So, you know, we play our, our set and then we're backstage. We're watching the Black Eyed Peas, watching Ben Harper and really psyched because we're on stage watching them, you know, put all McCartney's instruments, the iconic Hofner basses getting put on the stage, getting set up. And myself and the guitar tech uh, are, you know, right there, feet from the bases, excited for the show to start. And minutes before the show starts, they clear the entire backstage oh. of everybody, even people who had just played. But the thing that ended up being really cool was we got moved off the backstage and we went into the press pit. So we literally were, you know the second not even second row we were in the press pit right next to mccartney's wife at the time heather mills and in front of speaking of fireworks you know they have the big display during live and let die with all the pyrotechnics sure. they ended up when living right before live and let die we were so close that they had to have us stand behind the pyrotechnics because we were actually in front of them so it was a situation that went from us thinking, oh, man, we've been on stage all day and now we have to leave to having, you know, the best seat in the house that I could expect <laughs> for one of my favorite artists. And, you know, back then we're talking this was 2005, six. So McCartney's voice was still in pretty fine form. Um, you know, it's 15 years later, so it's a little harder to hit the high notes. But back then, you know, um, it was very cool to be able to be that close and not just be in the audience to actually be a part of, you know, that kind of show and, and be on a stage playing to half a million people, you know, is an exciting experience. Sure. And, and, and that brings to mind like an, another thing is just being on the other side of, of that kind of experience. And I'm thinking about I saw McCartney in like 91 or 92 down in uh, D.C. And, it, you know, and. While we were up there in the nosebleeds, you know, on about a thousand miles, McCartney was about like, you know, that tall, teeny tiny little <laughs> figure. But it was still fun to go in here and have this communal experience. And then you get into something like Hey Jude, okay? And now you've got an entire stadium, okay? Like this was Robert, RFK Stadium, all right? So you got dozens of thousands of people all singing the nanas in, in sequence with one another. Right. And and you and you have this this truly communal kind of thing and I, I think it was the thing that like that the john seemed to reach for every now and then with some of his solo material and and what was it like being on the other side of seeing something like that just being like it, on it or close to the pretty, stage when something like that happens it's pretty crazy because you know you're in this little pen 
with very few people. I mean, they leave that, that press pen is pretty small. And during so many moments of the show to turn around and I mean, it's not even a huge show like the garden. It's Glastonbury. So like you're talking 500,000 people, 400,000 people sure. to turn around and right behind you to just see that amount of people just fully into this and singing along. It's pretty incredible. I think that's, you know, what a lot of people are missing right now with not having any live shows for a year. People are clamoring for that sense of community of being, you know, it's one thing to listen at home. It's even one thing to watch great concerts on a, on a huge screen in surround sound. It, that's one thing. But then when you're in that moment, I don't know, I, I've been, as I'm sure you have to so many live shows, whether playing or as an audience member, and there's just, I don't know, there's a tingle that, that happens when you just feel that energy from that many people that are all, regardless of anything that they believe in, the fact that they're all together, like digging on a song that much. It, 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 it's, it's pretty in, intense. Yeah, but that one in particular was like extra special. I've done like, yeah, like a was, couple that... of like Almond Brothers and, you know, everybody's kind of in there and grooving and, and, and that kind of thing. And, and I've, what was the other one that, that I, Fish actually was, was a pretty oh, okay. cool show in that respect. Okay, where, you know, everybody's together and they're just like, you know, passing the joint that came from God knows where. And yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> you know, <Yep>. <laughs> And move it along down the row and that kind of thing. But man, that one time with McCartney was just insanely cool. Yeah. And I can just imagine like, you know, somebody like just walking their dog outside the stadium and going, what is that noise coming from? <laughs> over?" <laughs> right, right. So let, let, let's move on to the to the you've got the well, let's start with the book. OK, you did a book about the Beatles. I did. Um, I wrote a book. This one covered their first two albums. It's basically a companion song by song analysis type of thing um, that I had been looking for a book like that for a long time. And my initial plans were to cover the whole, you know, co cover all of their material. But it ended up being right now, as of now, just the first book that covers their early material. Um, and I'm glad I started where I did that. I did start at the beginning because not a lot. A lot of times people, I'm not saying they dismiss their first couple albums, Please Please Me and with the Beatles. But when people talk about the Beatles, so many people focus on Revolver and, and Rubber Soul, Sgt. Pepper, Abbey Road, like the more in their quote unquote sophisticated albums. But the thing that I like digging into with those first two albums is how right from the beginning, as songwriters, they were sophisticated. There are certain techniques and chord progressions and melodic inventions that they did right from the beginning that they repeated. Um, so the thing I dug about writing that first book was to delve into the fact that, you know, they were a sophisticated head above everybody, head and shoulders above everybody else right from the beginning. So that was something that um, I really dug about digging into the early material. Yeah. I, I think a lot of that stuff does get overlooked and, 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 just that there are things that they bring even to the covers that they did. Definitely. Which, which is going to elevate it somehow. And, and so you get into these like, you know, Isley brothers versus Beatles debates when it comes to twist and shout and that kind of thing. Right. You don't often get that kind of argument about cover songs. And yet here we are like, which was the better version of twist and shout? Was it the Beatles? Was it the Isleys? And you know, I can make an argument for either one of them. Eh, I lean toward the Beatles, but you know, still, you know, <laughs> Yeah, and there's a wealth of material. I mean, th their covers. I, I tried to. I spent almost as many pages writing about the covers as I did about some of the originals, like a cover like "Money." There was so much in there mm -hmm. to write about, and you know that that throbbing floor tom and Ringo's playing on that, and just the, how ferocious it is. It's such a. I mean, it. I, I like. I really love the original. But the Beatles version, like it, it was almost like a proto punk metal type of, especially the um, the stereo version, which has a slightly different intro <clears throat> where there's a lot more reverb on the guitar and it's a lot heavier the way it comes in. Um, and that's a version that I think most of us as Americans grew up with. The one that's on the Beatles second album, it's a different, the, at least the initial uh, intro is a different mix than what people heard in the UK. So. 
I wanted to get into like all those details and to really discuss the Beatles as a young band because I felt like that part of their career, you know, not that it's overlooked, but when people talk about that, the early stuff, they talk about Beatlemania and they talk about certain elements of, of the songwriting, but something like She Loves You was groundbreaking and just, you know, these these altered chord progressions and, you know, not just the 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 sixth chord in the vocals that George Martin wanted to get rid of. But there there's a lot of meat there in a lot of that early stuff. And their cover choices are really interesting too. So it it was a lot of it, it was enjoyable to really delve into that aspect that I felt like hadn't been talked about that much. Yeah, and that's kind of cool because like with 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 my show here, um I like to get into like the story behind the song and maybe a little bit about the artist. And I have shied away from the Beatles as a group, largely because they are so documented. You know, it's right. like, what could I possibly bring to the table for this? Right. One? You know, like everybody knows the story about this and everybody knows the story about that. And, you know, and the, you know, like the, the wine bottle on the speaker and whatever else, you yeah, know, yeah. all those, all those <laughs> weird little things that happened, the mistakes that they decided to leave in because it sounded cool. You know, it, it, what could I possibly do? And then you actually came in and you found another way to do it. And I, I congratulate you for that because you're able to do that. And then you're also to turn that into a podcast of yourself and want it uh, on, on your own rather. And why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, yeah, that really came from the book when, when the book came out, um, and I was promoting it at some of the, the Beatle Fests. Uh, I was also going to do, you know, people, usually the authors will give a talk and, uh, you know, depending on what their topic is, it might be audio visual. It might just be, a, you know, a talk about the Beatles. So what I decided I wanted to do was uh, I wanted to do like remixes of songs where people could uh, just hear certain elements and i and i've amassed a lot of stems and a lot of uh you know whether from bootlegs or from all the rock band stems that that came out at one point or you know everything that's come out in surround sound it, it's you could pick apart all the five channels of the surround sound mix and there are all new elements that that you could hear that no matter how much you've heard the Beatles, you haven't heard it like this. So it really started with a few presentations at the fests. And then I decided uh, I was approached by a Beatles internet radio station and that said, hey, do you want to you know, have a regular show? So I said, yeah, cool. That'd be great. So I started doing it as a weekly show, which then developed into, well, rather than just have it on once a week on this channel... Why not have them all available so people could listen to them whenever they want? So over the over a few years, I did uh, you know a little bit over a hundred episodes. Um, and then, as we've spoken about a little bit, there are always issues when you have a podcast and you're dealing with uh, playing music that you don't have the copyright for. So there have definitely been bumps in the road with uh, Universal, even with fair use for educational purposes. Is sometimes it's very hard to get past that. And so my podcast was taken down for a while from SoundCloud, then went up on Podbean, was uh, taken down from Podbean. It was funny. It seemed like once it got to around 120,000 downloads, that's when <laughs> they were like, hey, wait a second, what's going on here? But the funny thing that happened in both cases was the claims they made for specific songs, oh, this needs to be taken down because you played. It was very funny, at least with SoundCloud. The one song they kept saying that I played and they said I played it on three different shows was a live version of A Hard Day's Night, which I never played on any show. So it was such <laughs> a weird thing that the algorithm that was picking out whatever it was picking out to say, hey, wait, you can't play this, was picking out songs that never got played. But Thankfully, this last round with Podbean, after a few months of back and forth with them, um, it got put back up. So now I'm working on new episodes uh, that are going to go up soon. Uh, the, the latest is going to be a deep delve into uh, the White Album, which they released a few years ago, uh, a, a new surround sound mix, which is phenomenal. Mm. They, they had done that with Sgt. Pepper 
and honestly, I wasn't that impressed with that surround mix. I felt like they used the back channels a little bit more for atmosphere rather than using them for specific instruments. But the White Album was like a 360-degree turn from that where there are so many distinct elements behind your head, in front of you, in the center channel, that when I deconstructed all the surround mixes, I heard things I had never heard before. So I started putting... Um, a series of shows together that would demonstrate ser- I, I actually went just for channel for channel um, to really listen to it as a mono mix of just the left surround, just the right surround, just because there were so many cool things that I had never experienced before. So um, coming soon is going to be this whole series deconstructing the white album. So this would be something different from that deluxe edition that came out, what, about a year and a half, two years ago with the Escher demos and and so forth on it. There's something else again? Yeah, it's actually taking the surround mixes from that set, but separating each channel, the left channel, the right channel, the center channel, and the two surround backs. And I've created single channel mixes of each channel for each song. And they did such a good job with that surround mix that each channel, it's like listening to a new tune. It's not just, Oh, the kick drum and the bass are in the middle. And this is over here. There are things popping up all over the place. Um, I wrote, wrote an article about it for, um, I wrote an article about those new mixes when they first came out, deconstructing, you know, what was new to me after listening to this forever. Um, you know, some, one thing in particular that I never realized was in, Obladi Oblada, there's a distorted acoustic guitar that doubles the bass that in all previous huh. mixes just blends into everything. And when I separated all the channels, it was clear as day, like, oh my God, there's a distorted acoustic guitar playing through the whole song that I had never heard before. And I think a lot of other people hadn't heard before until it was pulled out of the mix. So it seemed like because those mixes were done so well, uh, to really use each of those channels, I figured it could be a, a an interesting way to to delve deeper into the sound of the White Album. That's interesting. It must be kind of like I, I'm thinking of the the video that came out a couple of years ago of, and I can't remember the musician who did it, but he broke down the opening chord of A Hard Day's Night. Oh yeah, um, <laughs> from Bachman Turner Overdrive. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he's like, okay, there's a little bit of this, bling, a little bit of that, bling, yep. a little bit of that, bling, and you put it all together, wham, and you're like, wow. Wow, it's like there it is. <laughs> and there's and so I and I imagine you must have had a similar experience with that. Yeah, you know, no matter how many times I listen to the music, especially with, um, you know, new surround mixes and and a a big revelation was when the rock band stems came out, um, which I've collected. There there were some sites that aren't around anymore that at one point basically put all rock band, Guitar Hero, any of those video games that had songs they had basically cracked the code where you could, whoever was doing this with whatever software they were using, they were able to pull every um, part of the mix apart. Because as you might know with those games, if you make a mistake, your part drops out. So for anything that's ever been in any of those games, they need to go back to the master tapes and make stems. So a stem might just be the drums, might just be the bass. So all of a sudden there's this wealth of not only Beatles material, but other artists, and you were able to get into almost like having the multi-tracks. And I've always been a collector of multi-tracks. I have some very cool ones. I have uh, Michael Jackson off the wall, like 48 tracks. Um, And you start separating these things. And no matter how much you love a song as a musician and as a producer, you start just listening to elements of things and you see even more of the genius of the songwriters, the performers and the producers to how they created these, these tracks that people are listening to, you know, 50 years later. All right. And, and before we move on, there's a term that you kind of kicked around a couple of times and I've heard it myself, like among the podcasting crowd and still don't have a hundred percent of a handle on it. But but can you explain stems to the layman? Oh, sure. So a stem is basically, you know, when you're mixing a song, you have different elements. You'll have the drums and say, say the drums are separated over eight tracks. So you have a kick drum track, a snare drum track, a track for the o two, a stereo track for the overheads. So when you're mixing, you know, you're blending all these elements together. Um, stems are basically, 
you know, they could either be fully realized separation. So you have a bass track, you have a guitar track, you have a keyboard track, you have a vocal track. But often, um, at least with, you know, these these games that use stems, they would have like a sub mix. So it would be just the drums. So you could listen to just the drums. You could listen to just the bass. You could listen to just the guitar. And the fact that so many, there are so many traders out there trading these it becomes a really, it, it's it's what I base my whole podcast on, mostly dealing with the Beatles, but I've, you know, had Bowie, Steely Dan, I've done a lot of other ones as well, where you can just listen to a part of the, of the song. So just a set, just a particular instrument or a particular vocal track. That's what the stems are. You know, they're stemming off from the, from the stereo recording into all these little different pieces that when put together is what you're used to hearing. But when you pull them apart, you could just hear one element of the song. All right. And in addition to the Beatles, you're considered some of an expert on Steely Dan as well. Are you not? Yeah, I, I wrote the Steely Dan FAQ. Um, another one of my top favorite bands of all time uh and after i wrote the beatles book a friend of mine who is a beatles author approached me and said hey you know there's this series that backbeat book does backbeat books does called the faq series and it started as uh books about bands but it it ended up encompassing movies and tv shows and basically you know a guide to an artist or a show or a genre um, so he said, Hey, you know, if I, I said it jokingly, Hey, if they ever want to do one on Steely Dan, let me know. And he called my bluff and, <laughs> and they got to me in like two weeks and said, do you want to do the Steely Dan book? And I was like, yeah, I'd love to. So, um, I just went headfirst into the world of Steely Dan. And while writing the book, I decided I wanted to also have a musical element or companion to go with it. So, I decided to record a CD of 10 unreleased Steely Dan songs, songs they had written and either, you know, just did demos of. Some of them were just very basic piano vocal demos. Some were a little bit more fleshed out, but that they had never released. And I decided I wanted to, you know, do a spin on 10 songs that people only knew in demo form and just flesh them out into full band productions with horns and vocals and backing vocals and everything else. And I released that right around the time that I did the book. And how did, how did you, how did you achieve the vocals? Did you just pull those off the demos or did you Oh just... no, no, the, it, it, it's fully, I, I did everything. I, I recorded it. So I, I sang, it was basically my interpretations of what oh, okay. these songs would be like had Steely Dan ever released them. So, you know, I brought in a horn section. I played most of the instruments myself um, and sang vocals, brought in a female backing vocalist for a few things, and basically made an album um, of what I imagine these songs would be like had Steely Dan decided to finish them and put them out there. How do you, how do you determine what, what constitutes a frequently asked question about Steely Dan? Like, how did you structure <laughs> that thing? You know what? I mean, the, the book is really just, uh, it, it's really up to the author to decide how they want to um, put the book together. So with what I decided to do is, you know, I spent, I, I'm a chronological kind of guy. I, I like that in, in a book or in anything else. So I basically dealt with a bunch of chapters on their childhoods and how Steely Dan came together. And then also dealt with, I went album by album uh, discussing the songs. A lot, a lot of time is spent on the musicians that, ended up playing on the records because while Steely Dan started as a regular five piece, six piece, if you count the second vocalist, David Palmer, they started as a real regular band in the seventies with Becker and Fagan as the songwriters. But after two albums, Becker and Fagan decided they wanted to have the flexibility of using studio musicians. They decided that the guys that they had in the band um, you know, primarily the drummer, uh, Jim, Jim Hodder, that they wanted to use session musicians more frequently. And with that, all their albums really became just bringing in some of the top musicians, uh, session musicians, jazz musicians, rock musicians of the times to create these albums. So I felt like even though Steely Dan started as a band, they really ended up being, you know, a production machine 
and with Gary Katz, Walter Becker, and uh, Donald Fagan at the helm. So I thought that it was important to really get into the backstories of a lot of the musicians that played on the records. So I spent a lot of time talking about these musicians so people could get a deeper understanding of the amount of work that these guys played on. Some of these musicians have played on thousands of albums and people you wouldn't expect. You know, Jeff Porcaro, um, drummer with Toto, who played on Steely Dan material, um, played on a lot of early Steely Dan material. You know, he was Sonny and Cher's drummer. So it's just those backstories of the musicians that I thought was really interesting as well. And then once the band started touring again, you know, they only toured a little bit in the early 70s. They they toured uh, up to supporting the third album, and then that was it. When they came back to touring in the mid-90s and then afterwards, I thought it was would be interesting to really uh, document each tour, songs that were chosen, um, the way that certain songs were changed. Uh, so I did a lot of writing also on their touring years, which ended up until you know last year when everything got canceled. They toured every year, you know, even after Walter Becker passed away, they continued as Steely Dan to tour you know, quite a few months a year of every year. So I thought the touring years um, as the rebranded Steely Dan when they came back together was an interesting thing to really talk about a lot as well. And and when you when you refer to them as a production machine, I presume you're not using that in any kind of pejorative sense, correct? Oh, not not <laughs> at all. I mean, they you know what they really decided that they they never really liked touring. Um because they honestly, they weren't like touring can often be a very frat boy type of experience. It's, you know, and I could only imagine what touring in the early 70s was like, especially when they were opening acts for, you know, heavy acts like Montrose and a very different headspace than these two sort of bookish guys from Bard who, you know, saw themselves as songwriters more than as a rock and roll band. And I think that they realized once they didn't want to tour anymore that they could really use the studio as as a lab, M much in the way the Beatles did when they decided they didn't want to tour anymore. You know, they were like, we want the studio. The studio is an instrument. And as much as I like playing live, I love the studio more than anything. I like recording. I like producing. And I prefer it to live playing. If I had to choose one or the other, I would always choose the studio first. And I think they were like that as well. And I and I think, you know, besides McCartney, who is someone who loves being a showman and being on the road, I think the rest of the Beatles, too, liked the studio more, like that ability to be able to create art in the studio. And I think that's what Steely Dan, once they realized they could do that and bring in these incredible musicians and, you know... Um, as as has been said about them, they would at times play musical, not even musical chairs with the musicians. They would play musical bands where you would have a whole band come in of crack musicians, the best in the business, play through a song and might record for a day. And they decide that's not the right feel. The next day they bring in a whole new set of musicians to play the same song. It was like that kind of precise detail that they wanted to bring to the music that I think they felt that as a five piece band and as a touring band, they just couldn't do. Mm -hmm. And I think you know, also like back in the day, it, they, they didn't seem to pay a whole lot of attention to who got paired up with whom when it came to touring. And you hear these stories about like Jimi Hendrix opening for the monkeys. And so, yeah, it must be kind of kind of jarring as an as an audience member to go to one show and get and get something else. Like even into the eighties, they kind of sort of straightened that out a little bit because I remember like when I went to see the Almonds, it was it was Delbert McClinton opening, and I was like, okay, this is a cool oh, pair. that works. Or or Charlie Louvain opening for Lucinda Williams, like that works. Okay, okay, that's a cool combination. Yep. Jimmy and the Monkeys, mm, not so much. <laughs> And Jimmy was with the monkeys because the monkeys saw him and thought he was amazing. They were yeah. like, we want to bring, we want people to see this. This is incredible. Like they were so in awe of him, but I don't even think they even realized that their crowd was just going to be like, what is this? What does this have to do? And Jimmy left the tour pretty quickly because yeah. he was going out there and people are screaming for the monkeys and he's, you know, doing his thing, which is pretty far from the monkeys. Well, I'm sure a lot of his, a lot of their crowd was also very young. 
very young. Yeah. Yes. And just and just weren't quite getting that. They weren't. They, there was. There was. They just didn't have the level of sophistication, which sounds pretentious, but. <laughs> no, no, but, it, but it's true. And, I, and I'm a Monkees fan, you know, and I'm a Jimi Hendrix fan. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have loved that, but but I'm sure a lot of, you know, 11 and 12 year old kids, Jimmy at that point was was beyond what they could. The, the, the thing that's funny is when you think a couple years later, I'm sure a lot of those kids were that were at Monkey shows were probably huge Jimi Hendrix fans because it had a chance to settle into what people accepted from music and what they were open to. So you think if he's touring with the monkeys in 67 and their 11 year olds are like, what the hell is going on by a few years later when they're 14, they probably, a lot of them had some Jimi Hendrix records. Sure. (laughs) You know, I I think about that scene in back to the future where Michael J. Fox starts like rocking out and the whole audience is like, just completely what happened here. And I guess you're not ready for that yet. Yep, exactly. <laughs> All right, let's move into present day. You've got a project going on, which I thought was really cool and fun. Um, it's a 3D animated musical called The So-Called President. So it's pretty clear where you stand politically here, but but tell us a little bit about that project. Well, you know, it started, I um, basically, I, I, I wrote it over the course of a year from, uh, I guess it was right after... <laughs> the inauguration in 2017. Um, I, I initially was thinking of just writing some songs, you know, as a songwriter and, and in the past having written songs with my political opinion, I decided I wanted to, you know, write some material and I had never written a musical, but as I started thinking about it more, I was like, you know, this, this is bigger than just a few songs on a CD. So, or, you know, a few songs streaming as an EP or something like that. So I started developing it into a sung through musical. And over the course of a year, I wrote it and recorded all the instruments. And I actually recorded all the vocal parts for all the different characters. And once I was done, I started sending it out to some different festivals. And it was picked up for the New Work Festival in New York, which basically... um, you know, they have new works get on stage and sometimes it's just like a reading without a lot of movement. So what I did was I actually was able to put a cast together of some phenomenal actors and singers. And I did instrumentals of all the music that I had already recorded, did a bunch of uh, visual, uh, like short little clips and movies and things to, to be projected behind the actors and we did this show, like it's about two and a half hours long. We premiered it uh, in March of 2019. And, you know, people were really into it. And after that, I decided, you know, with everything that was going on and being not being able to right now put a show on stage anywhere, and also the amount of money it takes to, to put a musical together, I figured in the meantime, let me see how I could get this out now. So I started bringing in all the actors that had done the show on stage, changed a few actors to some other people that I thought had stronger voices and had them all come and record their parts. And luckily, like they came in, even some people that came in months later still remembered everything really well. So I was like, okay, this is a good thing. It must be catchy because the actors are remembering their melodies (laughs) and able to come in and, and sing all these parts a few months after the fact. So once I got everybody recorded, um, I was thinking, ah, oh, you know, I'd like to animate it. I started looking into, you know, 3D animators and it's a very expensive process. So I decided, you know, um, to try to teach myself how to do it. So I just, you know, locked myself in the studio and started figuring out how to create these characters and create the models and then animate them. And then, you know, COVID struck and quarantine and everybody was home. So I was like, all right, this is a perfect excuse to (laughs) delve even deeper. And over the course of, you know, seven months, I put together the first episode. I decided to, since it is a two and a half hour musical, I decided to do it in an episodic way to, you know, do like 25 minute episodes. Cause I figured that's a, a chunk that people are willing to jump into hopefully. (laughs) Whereas two and a half hours at once could sometimes be a little, 
tough with the attention span. So I put out the first episode on uh, Election Day. And the second one I'm finishing up right now. So that second one should be out in the next few weeks. <clears throat> and my plan is to just continue till, you know, the five episodes are done and all and all up on YouTube and, uh, you know, take it from there. I'd still like to, you know, at some point I would love to see it done on stage. Uh, but right now it seems to be really working out as this 3D animated musical. Yeah, and I think the way you've at least framed episode one you know, it, it doesn't feel like a stage musical. It feels like a musical and something that could certainly translate well to film. But you've got like so many different locations going on yeah. that, that that I was like, wow, I don't know if this would actually translate to the stage. Well, you know, <laughs> I wasn't sure when I started doing it. I was like, well, I want to make it interesting visually. So I tried to look at it as a mix of, you know, if certain elements of the stage and then certain part parts where it just sort of becomes a little bit of like a music video where it just brings you into all different places where you're not just in one location. You're all over the world because you can be because it's 3d animation. Yeah. So I was like, Let, how can I use this technology um, to make it a little bit more like a movie Um but still keep some elements of what you would expect to see if you were seeing a stage musical, like try to blend the two and make it a little bit more of a fantasy as well, where, you know, people are in places you won't, you don't expect. And, you know, it just jumps around a lot. Um, I wanted to keep it visually exciting as well. And, and it does work from that standpoint. It, it, looks, oh, it looks really good. And, and I, I was looking at the credits at the end. I was like, Oh my gosh, look, he's like got like a million voice actors. It's not like a couple of people doing several different voices. You know, so you really brought in a crew here. You've got, you're not the person, the only person playing the music. You brought in a few other musicians to work with you on stuff. I was like, this is, this was a hell of a project that, that, <laughs> that he got, that he got in on. And at the time you first conceived of it, and, and I noticed specifically that episode one, you know, dropped around election day. And I was like, when he started this project, he had no idea how things were going to come out. And now I'm kind of wondering, does this color your ending of the show. Well, and I'm thinking you know as what? someone who's only seen episode one, <laughs> the way I, as I was writing it, so much was going on in real time. So it got to a point where I was like, all right, I need to have, um, it needs to have a time frame because otherwise it'll, it'll go on forever. It'll never end. So I decided to really focus on the first year of the administration. Gotcha. And the thing that ended up happening is as time has passed and I'm still basically putting together something that's encapsulating this one year. I found that so much of what happened after the fact with just attitudes and um, even though new events happened, a lot of it was replaying the same thing, the same attitudes, the th same things that happened that first year, even though they might've been amplified in the years that followed, maybe culminating in, you know, January 6th and everything that happened at the Capitol it all led up to it. So the thing that I was happy about was the way I felt in that moment in that year, everything I wrote about, even though it's just about that year, is still very relevant today, which was one thing I, I honestly was worried about as I was writing. I was like, well, is it just going to frame this one year and then things after it are going to be so different that this isn't applicable? But I ended up, you know, the stuff that I thought was important then is still important. So it actually worked out quite well. Well, very good. And, and, and um, I, I think from a, from a visual standpoint, there are a lot of cool little details that I, that I appreciated, like when you have the scene that takes place at um, Hillary's campaign headquarters and you got like the banner just like starting to fall, you know, yep. things like that. But, the, but there was one thing, and I don't know if you did this on purpose or not, but I, really, I noticed it and I really appreciated it was in the scene where she steps out into the street from the inside and we're at like a T intersection. And there's one point where the the virtual camera kind of moves to the right, and there's a there's a traffic light in the in the shot, and basically you can see that the traffic on the cross street is the light is red, but then as the light moves around, it's red for the other side too. So it's just red yeah. all around. Nobody's going anywhere. Yep, exactly. Yeah, I, I tried to throw in I threw in a lot of you know Easter eggs, like little things that you know I thought were funny or just little you know tidbits of information just the fact you know that at the end of that scene when she's having her campaign 
you know, basically concession speech. It's in a dilapidated gym, like just things that just tried to, you know, the whole thing is a little apocalyptic and I went a little overboard in the dystopianness of it. But I, you know, that's how I felt like visually, even if it's not realistic in that sense, you know, I know that when she gave her concession speech, it was not in a dilapidated gym, but at that point in time, it felt like that. So I tried to put in a lot of things to, you know, make it visually stimulating and also just pop in little things that people could laugh at, like the books near Bannon or Mein Kampf and, you know, uh, Lenin and things like that, rather than just being a stack of books. I tried to, you know, throw in little things that visually, if you catch them, you know, little inside jokes. <laughs> Which means, you, yeah, you clearly grew up reading Mad Magazine. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Um, so you said you said the podcast is coming back soon. This is coming back soon. You know, this, this, you've got a lot on the plate for the near future, it seems. I do. You know, I'm trying to keep busy and, you know, with everything being so shut down, not being able to do as many sessions in the studio, gigs being <laughs> what they are. Um, you know, I've just tried to take advantage of the time to continue uh, working on this. And I, I was very happy once I got through the, the legal shenanigans with Podbean to be able to get the podcast back up. Um, cause you know, I hadn't done any new ones in a couple of years because of all the back and forth. It got to a point where it was like, it's, it's hard to keep putting things up if they're going to keep taking them down. But it seems like I've gotten over a hurdle where they realize it's fair use and that moving forward, I could, you know, put up some new material and, and my thoughts are to expand the podcast to not just be the Beatles multi-track meltdown, but just make it the multi-track meltdown. Cause I have so many bands that I love and I have so much material from, you know, various, like, uh, as I said, I'm a big Chicago fan. Chicago released many years ago, all of their, their first 10 albums were originally released in quadraphonic sound, you know, because that was a big thing back in the day. Like sure. a lot of stuff came out in quadraphonic sound. So those separations are cool as hell where you can just hear horns. And so I want to try to expand the podcast to not just be about the Beatles, but to to really have other artists. As I said, you know, there are a bunch of episodes that are about other artists. But I think I want to in the future, maybe after this White Album series, really expand it to just, you know, do different shows on different artists and, and really delve into deconstructing their music as well. Okay, so the podcast is The Beatles' Multi-Track Meltdown. The books are the Steely Dan FAQ, and I Want to Tell You, which is volume one of yep. The Beatles. Uh, the first couple of years, uh, is volume two in the works here? It, it was in the works, and then I started doing all these other things, but <laughs> I have a feeling that once the musical is, once I get my five episodes of the musical done, I, I plan on getting back to uh, where I left off with volume two and, and hopefully getting back into the track of that. Cause I, it was always planned to cover all their albums. So I, I would love to get back to that. Cool. 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 And where can people find you on the web? They could find me at Anthony Robestelli.com. Uh, they could check out my studio at shady bear.com. And uh, the so-called president is on YouTube. Uh, if you, if you search the so-called president musical, you will see the channel and they can subscribe. So they know when, the new episodes are coming out. Um, and to get even more information on that, they can also go to the so-called president.us. Okay. And I think I have to warn you, you know, you're, you're living in Brooklyn and I, you know, as big of a Mets fan as I was when I lived up there, I got to tell you, our Aberdeen Ironbirds are going to do some damage to your Brooklyn Cyclones this season. <laughs> <laughs> we will see what happens. <laughs> All right. Mr. Robustelli, Anthony Robustelli, thank you so much for spending time with me. Oh, it was a blast. It's it, always fun talking to knowledgeable people about music and, and you know, people that are just into music. It's always, it's always fun to chat. Huh? How about that? Go to the website, howgooditis.com. Look up this episode, number 142, to see all of Anthony's projects and social media stuff. Check out the so-called President's video. It's a bunch of fun. And even if it's not your political cup of chai, I think you'll be able to appreciate its overall look and the work that went into making it. In the meantime, that is a full lid on yet another edition of How Good It Is. If you're enjoying the show, please take the time to share it with someone. 
sharing is caring and all that. And now you can support the show over at patreon.com slash how good it is. When you do that, you'll get a weekly newsletter with music news of the present and the past. And that comes every week, whether there's a show or not. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can follow the show on Twitter or Instagram at howgooditis. You can also visit, like, and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispod. Or you can check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, where you might find a few extra bits. Thank you, as usual, to Podcast Republic for featuring the show. And next time around, we're going to find out how good it is when you travel with me and Bobby McGee. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. How good it is.